Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our sixth series, we've collaborated with Yorkshire Sculpture Park for wide-ranging conversations with six of Britain's most exciting sculptors. Earlier this year, I met the visual artist Tanya Kovats in a central London park, where we sat in unexpected spring warmth and discussed the span and preoccupations of her career. Tanya's work across sculptural objects, drawing and installation often addresses our relationship with nature. Her projects have included Tree, a celebration of Darwin's bicentenary at the Natural History Museum, and Rivers, which drew on 100 water specimens from rivers across Britain. Her 2010 work, Ravine, is sited in Woodland at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. About 12, 13 years ago, my partner and I and our son, we moved out of London and I now live very rurally in Devon, in the Blackdown Hills. And I, I now live in an old mill. I think of your work and I think of its sort of relationship with nature and the natural world. And I guess it's too trite to think of London as not having nature. I mean, we're right in the middle of, of a park and you lived in Hackney, which is, I think, the greenest borough, isn't it? How, though, has the nature of where you've moved to shifted your work, do you think, if at all? Well, nature's a complicated word. I tend to see nature as a set of kind of processes and relationships and interconnected things rather than how we might think of the countryside or non-urban places. I mean, nature is everywhere, whatever environment we're in. And I think that's one of the kind of critical things we need to repair in terms of our relationship with nature and just understanding how it is everywhere. But there's no doubt there's a different experience to living right in the middle of Shoreditch to living in Devon. And we made that change after doing some travelling, actually, in South America. We sort of took some time out. And when we came back from that experience, we decided not to come back to the city. And in some ways, that was the biggest cultural change that we saw, <laughs> even though we'd spent time in Bolivia and Peru and Chile and Argentina. So suddenly, actually living rurally and being surrounded by people that had very different kind of experience, very different relationship with the urban as well. You know, people would feel sorry for me for having to go to London for a work or something. And similarly, I've got friends in London that still haven't been to visit because they don't see that kind of non-urban experience as something that's welcoming to them. So we're quite divided on our little island about the relationship between town and country. But I know in, in my thinking, I tend not to separate them too much because I think that's all part of our disconnected relationship with the non-human or the beyond human or nature. <laughs> How far are you from the sea? About half an hour in a car. My partner can ride it on his bike in about an hour and a half. But I live next to a little river, so I never feel far from it because living next to a line of water, I think, connects you to other bodies of water. And I know um, when we first made that move and that little river became, became a kind of soundtrack to where I live as well, it felt like one of the most important lines of connection where I am. I mean, yeah, I've got a phone line or electricity or there's a road that goes past the house or internet connection now. 
but actually that that little stream of water and how that connects to other rivers and how that connects to the sea feels to me one of my most important lines of connection from where I am. Obviously I'm asking about water in the sea because bodies of water, the horizon line as seen from the sea or looking at the sea comes into your work quite a lot really, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd say I've been preoccupied with water for longer than I even realised because even sculptures that I made some time ago that don't directly reference water, when I think about them now, I realise that I've honoured water as the sculptor in the landscape, as the thing that made the cliff face or carved out the gorge or kind of formed the edge of the landscapes that I might have kind of modelled in some of the earlier sculptures I made. So even when I haven't made the work directly about water, which I think I do now, um, it's present in the work. Where do you think that's come from? That's a good question. (laughs) Well, I was born in Brighton. I started off with a horizon line in my landscape, my first landscape. And I can, you know, remember even as a young kid just loving looking out to sea and looking at that space beyond and wanting to go there, wanting to get to the horizon, (laughs) even though I couldn't really conceive how I would do that necessarily. But sometimes it feels like there is something slightly different in the mindset of people that live at the coast, people that live with that space and just how you might think about moving out through the water. I mean, historically, coastal communities are often very well-travelled. You know, huge amounts of a community would be somehow connected to being on the water. And before the 1960s and the containerisation of shipping, where ports all moved out to great big facilities at the edge of cities and, and to places we don't really see them anymore. I mean, everyone would have had someone in their family that was involved with shipping or the sea or fishing or some or in the insurance industry or something that kind of related to the fact that we live on this little island but that whole workforce has has dramatically changed over the last 50 60 years and, and we're fairly kind of sea blind a lot of the time in terms of thinking about how the fact we live on this little island has shaped the way we think and shape who we are I know you sort of touched on that really in Only Blue, didn't you, a few years ago? So you sort of had a map of the UK and whited out all the middle space and just kept the sea. Is that right? Am I paraphrasing that badly? No, that, that's exactly uh, what that work was. I, I used um, old atlases. I mean, atlases become old very quickly. You only need one border change and, and they're a bit obsolete. And I did that thing you're not really meant to do at, when you're told at school you're not meant to do, I started painting on them to get rid of all the information about the land and just leave the information about the sea because we're land-based creatures we prioritize the land and often forget how important the health of the sea is to our survival so somehow obscuring all that kind of cartographic knowledge and 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 certainty about the land dissolving that and and kind of prioritizing how the sea is mapped is something I've looked at and continue to look at actually. So I've made recent works where I'm drawing on um, 
hydrological charts, so sea charts, that hardly have any information about the land, actually. It's only interested in the land for, like, how you would bring a boat to harbour. And that, that's, or if there's something significant that you would see from the sea. They're wonderful maps. I, they're very good for a kind of landlocked sailor <laughs> to look at. Um, you studied in Newcastle, didn't you? How different was that sea from the Brighton sea that you, you'd known growing up? Oh, well, when I wanted to choose where to go to university, first of all, I wanted it to be as geographically far away from where I was from and so I was looking at either the tip of Cornwall or sort of the edge of England but Newcastle was incredibly exciting to go to I've never lived with that kind of post-industrial landscape before and the coast up there is fantastic much more kind of wild the sea was deliciously cold it was you know where I first sort of fell in love with cold water I think that North Sea much more steely a different kind of skyscape that that you felt it's kind of the call of the north in it the bigger skies and then following that coast uh, north all, all that east coast up from Berwick and up into Scotland was just fantastic to do as someone that was kind of starting to encounter big landscape I mean the the Sussex Downs are my kind of natural landscape and they're soft and rolling and quite kind of welcoming but my first kind of walks in the Lake District or Hadrian's Wall and things like that were yeah quite mind-blowing really really kind of expanded the challenge of being in landscape as well you know the savagery of weather or storms yeah that was they were all very very uh, impactful encounters again did that expansion and, and that impact make its way directly into your work or did it take some while to sort of percolate that's interesting I think um, a lot of the time I was at art school I was trying to work out what art was actually and because I, I hadn't grown up in a kind of family where art was particularly present, you know, my grandfather and, and grandma were in service. She was the cook and housekeeper. He was the butler. I was born in my nan's council flat in Brighton, in quite a rough bit of Brighton, actually, in Whitehawk. You know, my mum and dad eventually made some money and changed our kind of circumstance, and it meant both my brother and I went to university but it, you know I know I didn't start with the sort of life I live now and I suppose that meant art was something that I kind of found for myself through just a great love of it love of doing it love of making it had a good arts teacher at school who could see that there was something a connection there and that I was lucky that that was fostered you know there was no objection to me following that path I mean partly because I was a girl and it was just not seen as that important what girls did in my family sadly you know and I would say my family very proud of the path that I did choose so yeah that that relationship with having the time whilst at art school trying to work out who I was what art was trying to kind of explore my first encounters with feminist thinking and politics that I didn't know much about what what the relationship between art and spirituality was as well because I'd been sent as a young girl to a convent 
And I became quite obsessed with religion and belief systems and the Virgin Mary in particular. I kind of adopted the Holy Family, I suppose that's the terminology, as, as my own. You know, they became very good kind of stand-in. Um, so I was quite attached to them and it took a while to kind of detach from them, not that long, but um, a little while. And partly that was through sort of finding out about philosophy or various writers or poets or artists that kind of may, again, sort of reintroduce me to seeing the world differently. So there was a whole sort of entanglement between, OK, what is art? Is art a spiritual experience? You know, there was a lot I was trying to work out whilst at art school. And I think my relationship with the natural world, nature, landscape, how I felt when I was in landscape, started to kind of inform all of those things and became the kind of grounding, the relationship that I didn't need to move on from um, in the way that I felt I moved on from the relationship with religion. I've never moved on from my love of art either, but I don't often think about those sort of formative experiences, and you may want to edit all of that out. You've talked about landscape being shaped by water, and I think we're all shaped by experiences in the exact same way even if we don't realise them at the same time so it's fascinating to me I associate you for obvious reasons with drawing you've, you've written books about drawing you're a big advocate for the, the skill and, and practice of drawing but sometimes your drawings are more physical than simple just pencil and paper aren't they? Well, I, I struggle with the word skill in relation to drawing I Be- No. <laughs> well, partly because it conjures up an image of uh, being really good, that's in inverted commas, at copying something or uh, creating a likeness, which is quite a tyrannical element of drawing. And, you know, the reason why so many people find themselves saying, oh, I can't draw. And I, I've put quite a lot of time and energy sort of trying to expand the idea of what a good drawing is when I'm talking to people about their drawing. I also set up with uh, a very, very close friend of mine something called Drawing Breath, which combines drawing and meditation. And we run workshops and retreats. I actually did one last night. And I start this conversation by talking about don't judge the drawing. Just, just allow the drawing to happen. Trust the drawing. Let the drawing come through you. Which is all very anti-skill type conversation so yeah that that's a very important bit of how I think about drawing that it is a tool of well-being that's been proved again and again like the amount of people that their drawing practice was really important to them during the last few years that we've had with lockdown and all the isolation people have experienced something about making a mark and just being present and communicating with yourself through drawing is so important for kind of personal ecology and well-being. I mean, there's no doubt there are a whole kind of range of drawings in the world. Some of them are highly skilled and some of the drawings I love are highly skilled. But I, I, I do kind of question that as a kind of tyranny when it comes to drawing. Many, many people use drawing to kind of visualise their thoughts or record their thoughts or exchange their thought. 
my own kind of experience of drawing and and how I feel it enriches my life and how it is a sort of weapon of choice and tool of survival in my own kind of practice but also the drawings other people make and there's something more accessible about a drawing you can find your way into a drawing when you look at it and you can find your way out of it more so than lots of other art forms that disguise how they are made or have different kind of timelines to them so things get kind of more hidden I've just written, because uh, I've always taught as well, as well as being an artist, I've just written a new MA drawing for the university that I work at, which is in Dundee in Scotland. And I'm really excited about um, bringing that to life, actually, in, in a different part of the country. How do you feel when you've not done your own drawing for a, a few days? Is it like yoga and it's something that you like to do every day and reset? Or Yes, For me, drawing is another practice, like my yoga practice. And I can go quite some time without drawing because sometimes I need a particular kind of space to drop into to be able to make the drawing. Like getting on the yoga mat doesn't actually take me long to change states to be comfortable doing the yoga, comfortable doing the drawing, allowing the space of the drawing to open up. And sometimes I'm literally drawing a space, particularly drawing the sort of surface of the sea in the sea mark drawings that I make. I, I'm actually drawing towards the horizon line between the sea and sky. So the space of the drawing is both appearing in front of me and something that's happening, I suppose, in my head as I make those drawings. Um how do the drawings speak to your sculptural work or your more sculptural work should we say I would say I make my drawings rather than draw them so they they speak quite directly to process over image so I'm doing something that has leaves a mark or leaves a trace whether I'm dipping blotting paper into ink or evaporating salt and ink on paper or uh, repeating a mark that kind of moves across the page almost like stitching or something like that so so I think there's a very direct relationship with the sculpture or felt relationship and seeing seeing the drawings themselves as objects as well I mean I know they're usually 2D but I think of them as things not pictures so much so I do I do think that's um, a difference I think lots of sculptors actually make drawings rather than draw drawings yeah it's it's an interesting distinction how different does it feel to doing those large-scale works something like tree obviously is one of your most famous ones which is at the Natural History Museum isn't it so do you actually do you want to describe that piece so tree was the work that I was commissioned to make invited to make by the Natural History Museum in London to mark the bicentenary of Charles Darwin's birth and a 150-year celebration of publication of Origin of the Species. And I was invited to make a proposal about three nights before my partner and son and I set off for this trip in South America. And one of the few books I was taking with me was Charles Darwin's Journey of the Beagle, which is still a remarkably good kind of 
guide to South America because he's writing so often about landscape and geology and those things haven't changed so much. So I made, made a proposal from a camper van in Patagonia. I had to find an internet cafe where I could type it all up and found out that I'd won, much to my astonishment, just before we went into the jungle in Peru. So, and it also meant we had to come back. Yeah, I think, I think we might have sort of got to Central America and then just stopped quite happily. But um, yeah, I was so excited and honoured to be making this work because, yeah, Darwin's theory of evolution is one of the best ideas we've ever come up with for who are we, how do we get here, you know, what's going to happen next type thing. So the piece of work I'd propose was to find a 200-year-old oak tree, same age as Darwin, and take a four-millimetre slice through that oak tree, so through the roots, through the trunk and through all the branches, and insert that uh, four-millimetre slice into the ceiling at the Natural History Museum of what is now the Treasures Gallery. And I, I, to be honest, I didn't know if this was possible. I would kind of imagined it was possible. I knew what veneer was, these very thin slices of wood where you could see the wood grain. But I didn't know if you could take that kind of slice through a tree. Luckily, it was championed by the museum because there, there were people on the board that had forestry experience that thought it probably was possible. <laughs> and I worked with fantastic fabricators and tree surgeons and we sourced a tree from Longleat who've been managing their woodland for uh, centuries in a sustainable way this this tree would have been planted to make a ship um, over 200 years ago Um, and we planted 200 oak trees um, and made a kind of Darwin wood as a way of honouring the tree that we took down and it was uh, a big day when we felled that tree. You know, it's a, oak trees are magnificent living things and um, support a whole range of other living things in, in them, both beneath the ground and above. So it wasn't simple to decide that this tree was part of the work, but it was a planted tree as a crop, so uh, we were in effect harvesting it at its just as it passed its peak, actually. And it was beautiful to work with this tree and be able to kind of read its life story in wood grain. I could trace a line of wood grain through the roots, up through the trunk and out through the branches. And it was as if it had written its autobiography. It told the stories of the storms it had survived and, yeah, the life it had lived. It was, you know, beautiful to be that intimate with a whole tree. I mean, we all have wooden chairs, we have wooden tables, wooden floor. We, you know, wood is chopped up and used all around us. But it's very rare to experience a tree in its completeness. Obviously, its roots are normally hidden as well. It felt quite like breaking a taboo to sort of be able to make the roots explicit. But yeah, it's a piece that's there forever. I mean, lots of things I do are, are not meant to be there forever you know they're temporary or they're passing or there's something quite special to know you make something that will outlive you has that experience fundamentally changed how you view a tree walking down the street definitely uh making a work like tree i mean it's one of the things about 
my job I love I find things out but that started a whole kind of journey about a relationship with the plant kingdom I suppose and just how little we know about it what more we need to learn from it their lifespans you know we we have our own sort of the family tree it's, it's a very familiar expression and how many generations one generation knows about or remembers um, but if you think in kind of tree years a tree's parents or trees grandparents or trees great grandparents you know you start you start going into deep time really quickly like time we can't access or conceptualize and also with trees just thinking about that interconnectedness um you know i was talking about a particular oak tree but you know that's that's part of a whole ecology with the things living in it on it beneath it the the ground is full of life forms that are interconnecting and i mean it's absolutely fascinating you know we we are so arrogant as humans <laughs> about you know how we privilege what we do but we would be much better advised to take models of behaviour and relationships from some of the non-human residents of this planet that have been here a lot longer than we have as well. Your work at Yorkshire Sculpture Park does sort of provide a place for contemplation in a way, doesn't it, of the natural world. Could you describe that piece and how it came to be? I was working with a series of sculptures where I modelled um, sort of geological landscapes based on experiences of seeing beneath the surface. So um, landscapes I'd seen, like my first visit to the Grand Canyon or certain kind of quarries or cliff faces where the geology was really explicit. And as a sculptor, I loved the question how do landscapes make themselves what are the kind of forces that where landscapes are kind of formed so the piece that's in Yorkshire Sculpture Park came out of a series of works that initially were uh, built for indoors gorges canyons cliff faces that I set into plinths so the white cube that you would normally put the sculpture on top of present the sculpture on top of in this case um was being used as a frame to hold these modelled rock faces. And sometimes I put the plinth through the same sort of geological upset that the landscapes have been through. So the plinths were tilted or broken. So the piece that's at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park is um, made in a different material, so in a concrete material with a black kind of uh, core colour pigment. So it's a dark rock that I mean, it changes, obviously it looks different wet to dry, um, and it's a kind of split ravine. And I made them in such a way as they were at a suitable height for sitting on. It just happens to be at a really comfortable height to function as a chair, and I had that in mind with ravine. And it has very smooth, uh, sharp, more kind of man-made architectural faces all the way round except for the one long face on each half of this twinned sculpture that has a kind of a modelled rock face that's been cast into the concrete. And there's also the interesting tension of it. It's near the lake, isn't it? But the lake is, is in fact man-made. It doesn't really look man-made, but it is, isn't it? Well, many, many of the features that we think of 
as natural are, are either managed or constructed or affected. I mean, there's that wonderful moment in British cultural history where Capability Brown was looking at the landscape paintings making the landscape look like a landscape painting and then someone would come and paint the landscape. This wonderful kind of feedback loop where art and culture was shaping the landscape. And I think I think that's something we're constantly doing. Yeah, we, we try and kind of recreate something that speaks to that natural language. And yet we have these distinctions. This place is natural and this place isn't. And I, you know, I question um, how useful that distinction is, really. Do you feel physically or emotionally different in in those places? Um, I think... uh, I I suppose I do. I mean, I, I crave the sort of space of certain places I'm also really happy in a crowd um, like a heaving anonymous crowd <laughs> you know I love big kind of music events or um, festival type situations because there's a similar kind of uh, space amongst that anonymized crowd for me it's often a kind of balance I'm, I'm either in retreat or <laughs> pushing out into the world or you know it's the sort it's the inhalation and the exhalation it's you know introvert making and extrovert making so what happens in the studio when I'm drawing is it's just me and a piece of paper for example but when I'm making a work like tree I, I have to kind of deal with relationships with many different stakeholders fabricators funders commissioners and you have to be much more responsive to all these different kind of characters and individuals or, or demands of the project whilst holding on to whatever this kind of completely core thing is that you're trying to do and you've never done it before and you have to trust that this is going to work and I, I do have that trust. I do have complete trust in the process and be able to bring this whole group of people with you, imagining this thing before it exists, before it's tested, before it's understood, and that you all kind of will it into life, you're all breathing life into it. It's an amazing thing to be part of those bigger group projects, and I've been able to do things I never would have been able to do on my own. But I can't work like that all the time. I get very depleted. So I think my current choice of living in very quite an isolated place is, is um, yeah, a, a good choice for me. Perhaps we could end them by you describing a moment in your home in Devon or outside in the nature of Devon that makes you feel connected to that landscape. Gosh, that's that's enormous. <laughs> Apologies. You can give um, us just one example. <laughs> well. Uh, it's interesting to be asked for one example because, and I would say it's not particular to it's not particularly Devon, you know. It's a, it's just about being in a place where I can notice change, and notice the difference between January and February and February and March, and you know when the next full moon is. And um, it is actually about being in that moment 
and knowing that moment will always change. Yeah, it'd be very hard to, and and kind of against what I do in a way and how I think about the natural world, to think of one moment because it is about being in each moment and accepting that none of those moments are fixed. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower and more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. <laughs>